0: this week on hangar talk new pandemic relief from the faa and we have an update from the arsenal of democracy also start your engines it's time to go electric racing we're gonna
1: hear about a frightening flight on a southwest jet
0: also cessna owners be on the lookout a possible new airworthiness directive
1: ian are you ready to do some hangar talk today
0: let's do it david
1: from aopa
2: your freedom to fly this is Hangar Talk.
0: 1056 turn right heading 130, final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts,
1: Ian Twombly and David Tulis. This is Hanger Talk.
0: Welcome to Hanger Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, you've actually caught up with twice for this interview. <laughs>
1: Indeed. I caught up with Lewis Smith, and he's the founder of Future and Active Pilots Advisors. We caught up with Lewis several months ago, and we updated the information with some new coronavirus pandemic predictions and a little bit more about what Lewis's group does to get some of the career pilots into the flight deck.
0: Yeah. So if you are looking at aviation for a career or maybe you're in it and, you know, just looking for a little boost or or want to keep networking, Luce's group is really cool. They do in-person events and, you know, virtual training and everything else. So good group, nice guy, excited to have him on. But let's start with the pandemic relief. This is something that we have to cover every couple of months because the FAA, just in stops and starts here, extends the validity of some of these things that people are worried about uh, expiring, like flight reviews, CFI certificates, knowledge test results, things like that. So a new one from the FAA.
1: Yeah, we wrote about this several times. We've chatted about it on Hangar Talk a couple of times, as you mentioned, Ian. So the FAA extended by two months the validity of certain medical certificates and knowledge tests that were to expire between October and January. And we added two months to flight review deadlines that would have passed during that period. But as you pointed out to me before the show, they subtracted a couple of things from that. I'm going to let you tell us about that.
0: Yeah. In the past, there's been some relief for flight instructors and also for instrument pilots, you know, to maintain instrument currency. And the FAA says, nope, no more on both of those. So CFIs... You will not get a renewal extension for this particular extension. And also instrument pilots, you won't get a currency extension here again on the look back. It used to be they had extended it to nine months. Now they're saying, nope, no more. Now it's going to be six months. This is very confusing. As you mentioned, it's like, okay, well, now this is something that's coming up in the next couple of months. But what if I just, you know, what if I was going to expire in September? And so it's like you really just have to go on the website. AOPA has put together a really nice flow chart that I think can help folks makes it a lot easier to understand. But if you have questions about your medical knowledge tests, your CFI certificate, your instrument currency, all that kind of stuff, you just got to go on the website and check it out and and read that as far because you will have some relief.
1: Or Or not. No, no. (laughs) Or, and you're a former member of this group, or... Call us at the Pilot Information Center, and we could walk you through that, Ian. That's what you did for a while. And um, I just want to let our podcast listeners know, and I chatted about this before during uh, one of our shows, that my medical was coming up during that time, Ian, Mm -hmm. and it was uh, up for renewal in September. Of course, I had to the end of the month, and I had originally got it done in 2018 at the beginning of the month. But I went ahead and opted for a real in-person third-class medical So I'm good to go for two more years, but you know, that would have been for me, I would have had the extension. It would have been possible, but with a lot of paperwork that we do to fly during missions for AOP, I went ahead and just decided to get it done and get it out of the way and visit my AME.
0: Now I'm curious, actually, now that you mentioned that, were you able to, I'm trying to remember, it's been a few years since I've had a medical, were you able to keep your mask on through the entire exam or is there a portion where you got to bring it down so that he or she can, the doc can look at something specifically on your face?
1: Just briefly, I just want to check out and make sure that you don't. I guess that you don't have cancer or anything like that in your esophagus or your mouth. But for the most part, okay, uh, you know, it's just a general look at your face. But for the most part, I kept it on. The hardest thing for me, I mean, I'm like, getting a little bit older now. The hardest thing for me was, uh, was the or, vision test. Yeah, baby. Uh, yeah, no. was, although I passed it with no restrictions at all. Good. But I mean, the, some of the things that you're looking at, and it's like it's, the, the differences are so subtle. I mean, it's yeah. like crazy. But um, <laughs> no, for the most part, I would I would uh, coach our uh, hanger listeners that it was it was no big deal we were very safe in, in my doctor's office we maintained uh, you know six feet separation between different patients and, uh, and he was just great. It's I uh, I don't know if I could say Dr. Steven Mann's name on, on the air, but he's a great guy. And it's been a, a good friend of AOPAs for a long time and absolutely was no problem at all whatsoever.
0: Good, good. Okay. Good news. Hey, so uh, an event you were just at and that we had promoted and we were all excited about the arsenal of democracy. This was uh, going to be, and you remember a few years ago, most of, I think the airplanes that flew the types that flew in world war II did a, essentially a parade, a military parade down the mall, flew over the mall, they're going to recreate this but mother nature got in the way this time
1: as it does so many times when you're looking at outdoor aviation events and you know ian this was the, like the largest gathering um, not just of warbirds but of, of aviators probably this year since the coronavirus hit and we had about 70 warbirds at two northern virginia airports where they assembled, they did practice runs, formation flying, and, and basically I wrote a little story, you know, they alternated practice flights with polishing and oil changes, yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, but you know, the coolest thing uh, really was the camaraderie between that group and a lot of folks who hadn't seen each other for a while, because a Warbird group, you know, the folks who go to different air shows with these, with these aircraft, uh, everything from you know, the L-5 liaison aircraft through T-6s and B-25s, uh, even we had two B-29s up here. It's a labor of love for a lot of people. And if you don't don't have a nonprofit organization that's helping you along, it's, you know, a lot of money out of your pocket to keep the aircraft going. But they were so excited. The pilots and crew were so excited to see one another. It was truly remarkable. I really enjoyed experiencing that.
0: Yeah, and, of course, I mean, you know, stories – everywhere in those two airports about uh, people who had flown these airplanes in the war, you know, and, and like you said, people who who have since, you know, worked very hard to keep them flying. And one that you caught, I just thought was really touching. It was a guy who had flown a B-29 in the war and got to, to ride in one again. Doc, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. So
1: absolutely. And so I'll expound on that a little bit. A 101-year-old World War II B-29 pilot, Bob Valche, he joined the dock crew. That's a Boeing B-29 airplane that he actually helped deliver. In fact, he delivered the first B-29 airplane during World War II. He's 101 years old. And he assumed a position over there in the navigator station. And even though the flight, the Arsenal Democracy flight was originally scheduled for September twenty fifth, a Friday, it was postponed till September twenty sixth, which is a Saturday. But weather, very low ceilings really scrubbed that mission. And it was going to go down the Potomac River and, and basically take a left over the Lincoln Memorial, go down to the National Mall, and then take a right and peel off out of Washington, D.C. But the, the ceilings were too low. But locally, Val Shea was able to stick around at one of the airports. It was Manassas Regional Airport over in northern Virginia. And he was able to get aboard Dock. And it was just a treat, Ian. He enjoyed it. I saw that when they were advancing the throttles for takeoff, he went ahead and had his hand in the position as he would be advancing the throttles back in World War II. Now, Bob Balsh, he flew 117 combat missions during 46 months of service. But here's what he was known for. He was the head of the spear, Ian, the head of 500 B-29s. That overflew the Japanese surrender ceremony in Tokyo Bay. It was over the USS Missouri. Back on September second, nineteen forty-five. So Bob who was a young man back then, yeah, yep. and there was a lot of pressure on him to show this this show of force. This yeah. was a very historical thing. A lot of you know the winning army would generally do something like this on land when there was a surrender that would that was signed, and so. But this was in the air. Wow. Uh, back in nineteen forty-five. Anyway, he had a great time on that flight, and we were so glad to be with him. I got to tell you now. Don't tell our our hangar talk podcast listeners or my boss, Alyssa Cobb, that I almost missed this flight. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I've been there for two and a half hours. And then um, I was chatting with the crew and I said, you know, I've got my camera gear and my video stuff and I just want to put on a flight suit so I could, you know, so I could squeeze my way through the aircraft. And these are narrow airplanes. Don't forget the people operating these airplanes years ago, Ian, you know, they're in their 20s. They yeah. were skinny. They're not like, yeah. so yeah. Yeah. So I went, and, and really, it took me like two minutes to slip on a flight suit. I mean, two minutes. And I came back into the terminal, and everyone is gone. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> so it, like was it was a setup.
0: They were like, quick, let's go now. And Tullis he's in the bathroom.
1: <laughs> I see a puff of blue smoke you know, coming down the ramp. I'm like, oh, my God, I've missed it. So, but anyway, uh, hats off to the, to the dock flight crew. They went ahead and fired the other three engines up, talked to the, to the pilot, uh, Steve Zimmerman. He held the airplane. They lowered the the crew door, and I uh, scampered aboard a ladder. And so it was funny. It was really cool.
0: They just spent you know five hundred dollars in gas waiting that minute and a half. You know. Yeah, but don't tell anybody. Like I said. <laughs>
1: It was fantastic. Uh, we we're so glad that to share that moment with Bob Balchay, and he is a prince, 101 years old, Ian, and it was just an honor. I mean, it brings tears to your eyes when you think about something like that. He gave so much to to our country, and so many others did too.
0: Yeah, yeah, great story. And sorry that they couldn't, uh, you know, that the flights couldn't go off. But like you said, they did salvage it in, in a way with a lot of uh, a lot of veterans and and volunteers and everything else. So I want to move on from the past to the future here, and that is. Racing and specifically electric racing. Now, this is something I'm, I'm actually really excited about. You know, in the world of motorsport, it's always about you know power and loud and you know smoke and smell and everything else. But as actually this Formula E series has shown with car racing, electric racing really does have its place. And um, a group is hoping to bring that to the sky.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna make a funny joke, and they'll probably, <laughs> they'll bring the buzzing sound <laughs> overhead to a racetrack near yes, you. Yes, that's soon. right.
0: Yeah. Zzz. Yeah,
1: but uh, yeah, you're right. Barringer Arrow, whose founders earned their racing chops with something that's close to my heart—basically motorcycle racing—and in fact, sidecar motorcycle racing. Wow! Uh, they partnered up with Air Race E to establish this all-electric. Air racing league, and it's going to uh, debut in 2021. Now you know that the Red Bull Air Race sadly disbanded mm-hmm. in 2019. Yeah, and we had a couple of U.S. Uh, racers that we that that are our buddies, Michael Goulian and Kirby Chambliss. We don't have word yet on whether they're going to join this group or not, but there are at least 12 teams representing nine countries. And Ian, I could tell our podcast listeners a little bit about the racing that's going to happen because it really is unique.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Red Bull and that was a totally different format, right? You go on in the course one airplane at a time and, and, you know, they have sort of this aerobatic routine that they have to fly through gates. But really this, this e-race league is hoping to more, create more sort of wingtip to wingtip type flying.
1: It is. Now I don't understand how they're going to do this safely, but Ian, eight electric powered aircraft are going to race side by side hmm. at speeds up to 280 miles an hour, just 10 meters, which is 33 feet above ground level yeah. through a one and a half kilometer or about a mile long oval circuit. Now, imagine if you will, you're at a NASCAR track and the car, their track itself is there, but you're in an airplane 30 feet above the ground flying yeah. at 280 miles an hour. All left turns, constant left turns. Yeah. That's what this is going to be with grandstands. And it is, it is just, it sounds out of this world.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, chances are they'll probably have to tweak the format a little bit because, boy, you can imagine. I mean, it's like to be able to fly in a mile radius at that speed, you're pulling some pretty serious G's. So, serious. Uh, you yeah, know, constant. And, yeah. And to do it over and over and over again on one direction, it's like, that's not a good thing. So, yeah, I think they'll probably tweak that a little bit. But I love the idea of the, you know, wingtip to wingtip you know airplane to airplane type of racing i mean that's what makes it really exciting and and i know it's like you know you don't get the smoke and the power and everything else but this e-racing it's cool stuff and the technology that's involved is just fascinating and it really pushes forward you know forever for all the rest of us the ability to have you know electric trickle down and so I, i'm excited i i I wish them the absolute best. I hope it works out.
1: You hit the nail on the head with that, the technology that we'll gain out of this because there's a lot of product R&D that will be involved Mm -hmm. with this. And listen, there's some serious money behind that there. The Air Racing League basically inked a little bit of a partnership with Airbus. And Airbus has predicted that there will be you know commercial airliners powered electrically within you know I would say the next 30 years so yeah. this is pretty unique and and there's a, a definitely definitely a lot of thought behind this
0: yeah yeah it's good stuff yeah looking forward to it hey want to turn to a person's name that you've probably heard you might not remember cuz it's been a couple of years but Tammy Jo Schultz she is the Southwest captain who with her first officer successfully brought back the damaged 737 into Philadelphia. This was the one where the engine essentially disintegrated. Unfortunately, one passenger was killed after the explosive decompression. But uh, she and her first officer brought this jet from an unbelievable circumstance at altitude down to a safe landing in Philly. And uh, Dan Namowitz, a uh, writer for AOPA, was able to catch up with her and got the story. And it is it's incredible. You just have to. It's fascinating.
1: I would advise all of our podcast listeners to jump on Dan Namowitz's stories. And uh, his story, it was uh, superbly written, and he really takes us through this, you know, moment by moment, as Tammy Joe remembers it. Now, there were 144 passengers and five crew aboard the airplane. And as you mentioned, sadly, one passenger, Jennifer Riordan, she was 43. You know, she suffered fatal injuries in that. And that was, if I recall, like the first injury on a Southwest yeah, flight ever. I think so. But Tammy Jo, who is a, an extraordinarily uh, good pilot and just a really someone who who takes safety to the next level, recounts all that. And is a, it is a fascinating story and a must read.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, any pilot will get a lot from this story. She offers just these great nuggets kind of throughout things to think about with emergencies and emergency prep. But my favorite, I think, that the, throughout the story, and then I'll just, you know, kind of give this away as a teaser. My favorite is, you know, we all hear aviate, navigate, communicate, right? It's like that's the that's the priority. When When things go bad, you focus on flying the airplane. Then you worry about how to get to where you need to go or where you are and then how to get to where you need to go. And then you worry about talking to somebody. And her point is, you know, it's like you get through aviate, and then you go right back and start aviate again. That sometimes things are, are, you know, perilous enough that they are intense enough that you just never get to the next step. And so really, you can't be thinking about it so much. This is at least the impression I got from Raquel. You can't be thinking so much about it in this sort of continuum that it's like, oh, you go from step one to step two to step three. But more a priority list. And for her, and for her and her first officer, it was really aviate for a long time during that emergency.
1: And now she did advise the uh, passengers what was going on that they were turning back to Philadelphia, and that was a key thing because I think as a pilot, as a career pilot, that kept folks uh, more calm in the back of the airplane. Now you and I, for flying a GA mission, it might not be as imperative for that, but when you have 145 folks, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, that was a key thing to do as well. But you're right, aviate, aviate, and aviate, yeah. and I think we've all been there.
0: Yeah. So great story. Definitely go online, check it out. The headlines, Barn Door in a Hurricane, if that tells you anything. So yeah, Google that and and go on and read it. It's something else. All right. So let's finish off the news today. We talk about uh, an airworthiness directive, a proposed airworthiness directive for Cessnas, and this is gonna impact a lot, a lot, a lot of airplanes.
1: Ian, it impacts the the kind of aircraft that I trained on, a Cessna 172 in like November model, and it also spreads throughout a lot of the later model 172s, the 182 line, from the E model to the T-182, most of the 206, 207 models, and some 210 models, And what it is, is we're looking at basically an inspection of the forward cabin doorpost bulkhead. And if the relatively inexpensive inspection doesn't pass muster, the repair cost could be between $6,500 and over $10,000 to double basically put a doubler in at that Ford cabin doorpost bulkhead area and that is some serious change and a serious problem.
0: Yep yep that's right so the AD they think is going to affect more than 14,000 airplanes this is one that was first if this sounds familiar was first proposed in 2018 the FAA has reopened the comment period um, AOPA has worked hard during that time to try and refine this AD a bit. Now, a lot of times these are like, oh, you found, you know, one incidence and it applies to the whole fleet and that's maybe not so good. However, they found, they they said more than four dozen similar cracks on airplanes that they've inspected or that have been inspected. So yeah, this is a big deal. I think, you know, the new proposal, it extends some of the service time a little bit and some other things. And so AOP, I think, was able to get a few, with the owner community, get a few things I would say a little less onerous on this, but definitely something that if you own a Cessna, have experience with this, you definitely want to comment on. The comments are open until July 13th.
1: What I'm concerned about is for the average Cessna 172 owner, Now, Ian, I looked up, I did a little homework like you usually do. I looked in trade a plane to see what the values are, and I found values of the N model, surprisingly, from 45000 all the way up to $95,000. Now, I remember when I was uh, contemplating buying a, you know, at least one, maybe two, and having a little flight school myself when they were about thirty to forty grand. But uh, the forty-five to ninety-five thousand so dollars—that's probably because a lot have been updated with modern avionics and some other systems that are available to us. But anyway, if you average out, say, fifty to sixty thousand dollars for the, the a regular one seventy-two of that of that age, the cost is about fifteen percent of an aircraft's average value if it's deemed to need this this work. So that is significant, and the problem is that. There were, like you said, there were some cracks that were found in that lower area, and that's nothing to sneeze at. That is a real serious problem, and it's something that definitely has to be addressed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, uh, go online. Like I said, July 13th, that's when the comments are due. If you've got a Skyhawk or, or one of those single-inch Cessnas and you think you're impacted, definitely go in, read the proposed AD, and uh, and provide comments because the FAA will will read those. David let's uh, let's talk about careers. Lewis Smith, a uh, guy that you thankfully were able to catch up with twice really interesting guy and and he's got a lot of really good advice for uh, people looking at aviation careers.
1: So I have with us today Lewis Smith from FAPA.aero, the future and active pilot advisors. And Lewis, you're over Skype. You're all the way in Hawaii. I'm here on the East Coast. Welcome to Hangar Talk.
2: Aloha, David. How you doing? Thanks for thanks for inviting me to talk.
1: We are doing fine, Lewis. I'm glad you're here with us. And for folks who don't know too much about FAPA Arrow, which is the website. You know, we're going to get into a lot of the details, but tell us, give us an overall ten thousand foot view of what FAPA. Arrow does for folks who want to be career pilots.
2: FAPA offers objective and independent advice for future pilots and also established pilots, all the way through the, their retirement years with our financial planning. So, the advantage we offer compared to a lot of information on the internet is that uh, we check our sources, we don't publish rumors, and we provide information and articles that pilots must make decisions throughout their careers. So the articles deal with all those decisions at various stages. One of them is should you become a pilot? Or is this really a profession for you? The next decision is choosing a school. So all of our articles are about.
0: Career decisions,
2: and because of that, we do not publish industry news anymore. As you know, industry news is it's uh, so ubiquitous that every, everyone is publishing blogs and websites and news. We don't do that. We, we specialize in publishing articles that deal with the, the important career decisions made by professional pilots at every stage of their career.
1: Exactly. And I know that you guys vet this stuff really carefully. You've been in the business for a pretty long time. I'm going to ask you a little bit about your history in a second. But basically, you're helping pilots, Lewis you're actually helping people who are looking to be career aviators, and you're you're really kind of pointing them in the right direction. Everything from, as you said, education to a job and to how do you invest your money? How about the future? You know, we've got to retire at some point. So there's a lot there for folks who want to get involved in aviation.
2: Exactly, and we're not in the business of promoting the profession per se. We're in the business of promoting rational thought processes. Once you decide you want to become a professional pilot, you have some you, decisions never end. You're always going to be making them. So if you call a flight school or a university, they might try to convince you to become a pilot because they want you as a customer. If you're listening to our advice, you're already a customer. So we're not trying to convince you to become a pilot. We want you to use your head. And then we see a lot, of, a lot of career mistakes made because someone has been told information by someone who's in the business of selling something else to do a certain thing. And since we are in the business of selling advice and you've chosen us, we're going to give you the, most, uh, the best advice we can.
1: Lewis, tell me a little bit about what FAPA is doing now during the coronavirus pandemic precautions. I know we're having virtual seminars versus the in-person seminars that, that you were famous for.
2: That's correct. We had to switch from in-person pilot job fairs where we had 20 to 25 companies recruiting pilots in person at various hotels around the country once a month. And then when the pandemic panic struck and a lot of changes happened about restricting the meetings we had to switch over to virtual pilot job fairs and virtual future pilot forums
1: well lewis tell us a little bit about the schedule now because that changed a little bit too formerly fapa had tw- at least 12 per year where you had a saturday event that combined some professional recruiting with some young folks learning about aviation what is the format now
2: Now, the format now is the the recruiters, we hold the pilot job fair on Wednesdays. We call it hump day hiring, the last Wednesday of each month, except for November, December. That has changed because of holidays. And then on the future pilot uh, forums, the virtual future pilot forums, we hold those on Saturdays now because many students will be back in school and they may not be able to attend a Wednesday uh, session webinar.
1: So for the younger generation, which, I mean, we're talking about aviation, and we're looking down the road a little bit, too, at aviation, as travel will eventually return to the skies. Right. Tell me about these Wednesday uh, events for the professionals, and let's jump back into the weekend stuff for the kids.
2: Sure. The Wednesday format is companies that are presently hiring. None of the passenger airlines are recruiting pilots. Uh, Many of them have announced uh, furloughs possibly in October of this year, Uh, but uh, The companies that are recruiting are going to be the private jets, uh, business jet travel, and also freight operators like Atlas Air and FedEx and UPS. Those companies are still recruiting, and we expect those to continue recruiting from now on. So most of the jobs are going to be in either corporate flight departments, uh, private jet operators that don't have an age 65 rule, and Part 121 carriers who fly freight who still have strong demand.
1: So, Lewis, you know, uh, speaking of uh, corporate flying and things like that, you know, you've been in the commercial air business for a while and also on the recruiting end and, you know, on the end of helping pilots get their professional houses in order. You know, let's think about the corporate travel world for a minute. I kind of think personally that many people might be more comfortable with, you know, general aviation type travel rather than jumping back into a commercial jetliner. I mean, where do, where do you th- what do you think about that kind of philosophy?
2: Right. They, they they will be, actually. Uh, a corporate pilot career can be excellent depending on the size of the company and the stability. Most corporate pilots, on average, will go through four corporations if, in their career if they stay on the, the business jet side. And up until this pandemic, you had a large number of pilots uh, leaving corporate flight departments to go to the airlines where the pay and the benefits, the time off, seemed to be better. But now that's all changed with the uh, cutbacks and the possible furloughs. Corporate pilots are not leaving. Most of the hiring at corporations now is not to cover attrition of people leaving, going to the airlines, just to cover the attrition of people retiring from the flight department. But it's a good career. Some people uh, like it a lot better, the f- flexible schedules. We have articles on our website about becoming a corporate pilot and the difference in the two. And they, they've always had a, sort of a love-hate relationship between each other, the, the corporate travel and corporate jobs and the airline jobs, because they share the same airspaces and some of the same airports but they have different goals. It's always been a conflict. But it's a great career. If you talk to those who've done it their whole life, uh, they've managed to make it a profession that's uh, rewarding and also builds a lot of wealth.
1: That makes sense. And, and I think I was telling you earlier about a pilot that I spoke to recently who retired from the commercial industry and then uh, got a—actually, I think you might have told me about this— a pilot who retired from the commercial jetliner industry and was, uh, I think, in their 70s or 80s and got hired for a corporate gig.
2: That's right. The oldest pilot hired at one of our pilot job fairs when we were doing them in person was age 77.
1: That is amazing. That is really good. People
2: age differently. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but it goes to show you that you can have a very long career and sort of semi-retire and still stay in aviation.
2: Right exactly uh, companies like delta private jets who who sponsors our future pilot forums uh, they they hire quite a few pilots who are experienced and they, they like that they can They can balance that with hiring lower time pilots for the right seat and sort of help them. Uh, become seasoned pilots flying uh, excellent equipment across the country.
1: Outstanding. Well, look, let's jump back into the youth world for a quick minute. Now, before when we had our in-person seminars, we um, we had the re- the professional pilot side happen at one part of the day. Right. Then we, you told me you, quote, unquote, flipped the room and had it all set up for families and for younger people, and really it's for the parents of these folks, you know, to get to think about a career. Tell me a little bit about the Saturday events for younger people. What you know, what does it entail, and how do y'all how do y'all pull it off?
2: We provide a presentation for future, not only future pilots and students, but also career changers. There are people who perhaps were have a, had a career in engineering or some of the other profession. They've always wanted to fly, and before COVID, we had we'd have sometimes 35 to 40 people show up who were just career changers. They're in their 30s or 40s, and sometimes, and sometime in their 50s. So it wasn't just students and parents; it was also career changers. And so we talk, we tell, them, we describe the industry. It's interesting because we show them a chart uh, of the industry and the pilot hiring cycles going back 30 years, so they understand that this could happen to you and be ready for it. And it's interesting; it's happening now. So that chart that we show them was showing several years of hiring uh, in addition to the cycles in the past. So we 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 tell them this is the industry has issues with uh, it's very labor intensive capital intensive and energy intensive and so you can expect some uh, some uncertainty in your career but so you have to deal with that as you go forward then we talk about the the, the cost of training what you have to do setting goals and have a, a path and then and then the reward if you are successful and you reach a we we mainly deal with the airline side as far as careers and we talk about what the how, how much money you can earn, and and is it worth taking these risks? So the parents are very interested, because in many cases they are the ones opening their checkbook and paying for the training, and they're concerned about... Uh Is it going to be worth spending this type of money, knowing the uncertainty in the profession?
1: That's right. And uh, one thing that we were talking about a little bit earlier was that, um, you know, uh, back in the day, aviation was a super good career and pretty lucrative. Then all of a sudden, things like, you know, uh, the legal field or the medical industry, even the computer IT industry sort of surpassed aviation. And we were were starting to see that turn around again right before the coronavirus hit.
2: Right. Yeah. After 9-11, you had 10 or 12 years there. They were just horrible for the pilot profession. You had pay cuts. You had uh, eight, eight to nine thousand pilots who not only lost their job, they, they weren't furloughed. The company shut down. Uh, about about nine thousand pilots, and so it was a horrible period of time for pilot profession. It turned around, and then since two thousand. 13 or 14, the, the hiring picked up, and we had several years of growth and had several years of uh, pilot hiring increasing every year. And also the, the contracts, the unions were able to negotiate with much higher pay and benefits, so they restored it to the, the buying power that they'd had prior to 9-11. And, and then this happened.
1: Well, now, if you had a crystal ball and you were staring into your crystal ball and someone was just starting out in aviation, now um, let's look at you know two or three years into the future, and what does your crystal ball show us?
2: Well, for a person, a student entering his freshman year at an aviation college, uh, it's probably no change in the decision. They're, they're, they're going downstream, and they're going to build their experience, get their education, get their flight ratings, and then they're going to turn and hit the main river like everyone else and, and go upstream trying to find a job. So it's not really a factor that affects that decision. If you want to be a professional pilot, uh, four years from now, the market will, be, will likely be turned around, and there will be pilot hiring. And the qualifications, depending on the pool of people, how many uh, pilot, how many companies actually shut down, if that happens, how many pilots are still on the market, it affects what qualifications are needed. Prior to this, a college degree wasn't really required by most companies, and uh, people were getting hired uh, at a lot of regional airlines without four-year degrees, and uh, in, some, in many cases the major airlines. That probably will change. The airlines will increase their qualifications in order to reduce the number of applicants on file to make it manageable. So it looks like a four-year degree is going to be uh, much more important going forward after this is all over.
1: So that's one big change from prior to the coronavirus pandemic is that four-year degree, Lewis. And there are plenty of uh, not just aviation colleges, there are plenty of colleges folks can go to and still get an aviation background on the side as well.
2: Right, exactly. Exactly right. Right now, collegiate aviation is under a lot of stress especially the two-year schools have a flight program, uh, running the budgets and running a flight operation is very, very expensive. So it remains to be seen how, how many schools will actually keep their their flight training programs and keep their degrees for professional pilots. So we're watching that closely at FAPA.
1: And you have been watching that since, I want to say, since the late 70s, early 80s when you embarked on this uh, on this uh, endeavor, and you've seen a lot of comings and goings, and ups and downs, like the sine and cosine waves of the hiring and and retracting in the industry. Right,
2: exactly. I have, and there's an old saying that you haven't, you're not real an airline pilot until you've been furloughed.
1: Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <laughs>
2: Well, um, this, this well, 1972, actually. Uh, when I separated from the military in 1974, the industry was in one of those downturns, and, and many pilots were laid off, several thousand were laid off from all the, all the airlines.
1: But, you know, like other fields, you've remade yourself and, and moved in a different direction. I think other folks might be doing that, too. And like we are, just uh, thinking about the horizon and looking in that crystal ball, Lewis, you know, what about electric vertical takeoff and landing and things like that? There are a lot of new technologies on the horizon that might mature in the next few years.
2: You're right, and the industry will change. Obviously, most of the companies are for-profit. If they're a nonprofit, it's not intentional. They like to turn it around and make money for their shareholders. But we see a lot of interesting you know, electric airplanes. Uh, you see uh, some pilots are actually learning to fly drones to uh, supplement their income, especially the ones that might be laid off. One of our sponsors at our, at our uh, future pilot forum and also a pilot job fair is Aquiline Drones. Company and they help pilots set up an LLC and learn to fly drones so they can earn some income. They perhaps while they're laid off from the airline. That's their big target right now.
1: Well, you know, the drone industry is on the up and up, and in, in fact, you know, a lot of there's a lot of interesting usage for drones right now, and, and of course, the electrical vertical takeoff and landing, you know, industry might might quote unquote take off when we know when that battery technology improves to the point where it could actually you know lift folks up in the air and, and go for a ways.
2: Yeah, urban mobility, urban mobility is a is a growth market, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see if we if the artificial intelligence and the cloud uh, can control the traffic and keep it safe. And obviously one of the biggest risks for cockpit jobs is unmanned aerial vehicles, and we will see how far that progresses uh, going forward. That's one of the big big questions that parents will have when they come to our future pilot forums is my future pilot who's in my in my house thinking about becoming an aerial pilot is he going to be replaced by a machine and but every profession has that risk you know artificial intelligence and automation affects every profession so You have to take certain risks going forward. The Boeing forecast, like you mentioned earlier, they haven't come out with a forecast this year, but it'll be interesting to see what their forecast is next year going forward for the next 20 years for a pilot profession.
1: That's a good point. Well, bringing it back down to earth from up in the air on urban mobility and things like that, let's think a little bit about um, the next couple of months. I'm looking at your schedule right now. Now, we're recording part of this in the summertime here, 2020, but I'm looking at – September, October, November, and December of 2020, you have FAPA forums and job fairs coming up. Right. And how can people tap into that, Lewis? Give them the lowdown on how they could register and show up for that virtually.
2: They will go to our website, go to fapa.aero.aero, and on that on that section, there's a, a link to future pilots, and it shows links to how to, how to sign up for our uh, virtual future pilot forums on Saturdays. And the job hunting pilots, you go to arrow same thing, and click on job hunting pilots. There's a link also that says job fairs. So click on job fairs, and that will bring up the schedule for the rest of the year for the uh, virtual pilot job fairs.
1: And again, the forums are basically set up for the younger generation the job fairs are set up for professional pilots the folks who are in the industry and need some help they need some resume help they need some coaching they maybe need some interview skills things like that
2: exactly so the the pilot job fairs are designed for someone that already they already have their commercial certificate or 250 hours And, and especially when we had them in person that was required to get in the door now we recommend you you can obviously you can attend these if you want to, but the airlines don't really want your resume unless you have the commercial certificate, and we, we expect that to obviously increase perhaps to an ATP certificate later, depending on the the number of people in the job market.
1: Understood. And just a reminder, FAPA. Aero, it's A E R O slash jobs for more details and the current list of events uh, that are in your neighborhood.
2: That's right. Well, it's actually, it's virtual, so it's it's anywhere. It's likely in January we will have our first uh, in-person job fair in Honolulu, Hawaii, here in my home. So that's my plan anyway.
1: That sounds good. Let's bounce back a little bit to a little bit about your history, because I think people will be fascinated to find out a little bit more about you. I do know that you were a military pilot to begin with, and you, you also, at, at a, a couple of years ago, I was listening to a podcast that you had a couple of years ago. Your wife was a flight attendant. Tell me how you started with FAPA and just take us through the origins of that up until you know till you entered the airline career
2: okay i was uh, began in the air force when i finished pilot training at advanced air force base i was uh, lucky enough to be assigned to uh, the c9a nightingale in scott air force base it's an aeromedical evacuation and one of my proudest moments in that squadron was uh, carrying the PO, ex POWs home from uh, from we pick them up in uh, uh, travis air force base and take them to the respective homes after the war in Vietnam, so that, I wanted to mention that. I'm very proud it. was a bittersweet moment to bring these people back, but our, our squadron did a lot of things. I landed at more than 400 airports around the U.S., uh, mostly civilians, civilian airports in the C-9A. It was a fascinating career. And so one, in 1972, I was the I was first officer on the C-9A. In 1972, uh, we were losing pilots uh, to, from the squadron. People were separating, and our squadron commander decided to bring in a friend of his who was a Pan Am captain. And I remember this to this day. The Pan Am captain stood up there in uniform. There were about 35 young pilots in the room, many second lieutenants, first lieutenants, and we we all wanted to work for the airlines at some point. We decided we weren't going to make the Air Force a career. So the Pan Am captain described an industry that was in collapse. He said all the airlines are going under. They're losing money. It's a financial hemorrhage. They're laying off pilots. The, The the profession as we know it is over. So I highly recommend that you stay in the Air Force for a career. The job security and the pay is good, but you won't have to deal with the uncertainty of the financial situation in the airline industry. So I went, <laughs> everyone walked out of the room going, oh, wow, I had no idea.
1: Scratching their heads, no doubt. Sure. You
2: know, exactly. So I went I went home and my, my wife was a flight attendant for Delta. In those days, they called us jurists and she came home from a trip. Uh, we were at Scott Air Force Base. She was commuting, I think, to Atlanta at that point. She came, when she came home, I told her the bad news about the industry. She said, well, that's really quite interesting. I just flew with a, a, a brand-new co-pilot at Delta on the DC-9. It, it started not too long ago. And I thought, wow, you mean they're hiring pilots? She said, well, they must be hiring pilots because he's, he's brand new. So I started questioning that. So I, you know, in those days, we didn't have Google. We had, we dialed 411.
1: Or that, or look, look it up in an encyclopedia or something, yeah, or find a neighbor, that kind of thing. Sure.
2: Exactly. You had to look it up somehow. Right. So I dialed 411 and I asked for the chief pilot, Los Angeles Airlines for Western. Western Airlines. Oh, how cool! Los Angeles chief pilot. And in those days, a lot of things were listed in the book if you had it. Uh-huh. I didn't have a Los Angeles directory, so, and I got a number and I called and the chief pilot answered the phone. And I said, "Wow!" And I started describing what I do. He said, "You're a pilot." And I said, "Yes, I fly a DC nine here at Scott He said, well, "When are you getting out?" And I said, "Well, I've been for two or three more years at least." And he said, "Well, we're hiring a lot of pilots." And I said, "Really?" And he started describing that everyone he knew, every chief pilot he knew at Eastern, United, they all knew each other. I think. Yeah. So they were all hiring pilots. So Pan Am was the exception. Ah. I learned at that point we there was we needed a better network before the internet, of course. We needed a better network of information, so we organized future airline pilots' association okay. on base there, and we had regular parties and discussed it. And so later on, when I when I separated, I started publishing a small uh, newsletter to be mailed out to all the members, and that's that's how it started in the beginning.
1: So you have a little bit of a journalism background yourself. I didn't realize that. That's pretty cool, man. <laughs>
2: Well, not a, I wasn't a trained journalist. It was uh, I had to get some, I had to get help from people who who were journalists who had been trained to to write the proper way. You know,
1: absolutely. So FAPA began as a paper newsletter back in the the middle to late 70s, and the airlines back then. So you got kind of information again, like you just said, now bringing it to the future. Some of that information is not verified. You had to verify the information, and it turned right. out that that airlines were hiring folks, especially with a military background. I would think. That would be preferred.
2: In those days, 80% of the pilots hired by the major airlines were ex-military. And they, so the industry was sort of subsidized considerably. They were spoiled by the fact they really didn't have to set up any kind of uh, pipeline or systems to create pilots. 80% out of the military and the other 20% would come from the civilian sector, which became quite easy. It was very difficult. In those days, becoming a pilot going through the civilian path was known as the hard way. Because it was very, very difficult to become a pilot if you're civilian background, you had to really wanted to be the best and brightest in the civilian sector. So it was kind of interesting the mix. In uh, 1974, when I separated to look for an airline job, by that time the Pan Am captain was correct. <laughs> The oil embargo had hit, and all the airlines were losing money. They were all furloughing, most of them were furloughing pilots, so there were no jobs available when I separated in '74. So it took me a couple of years to find a job. And with my newsletter, it was very helpful because I was calling the airlines every month, finding out how many you're laying off as opposed to how many you're hiring. But it's still valuable information. I mean, just because you, you publish a newsletter that says so and so furloughed 30 pilots, it doesn't help you find a job, but it helps save you time. If you're not wasting your time, in those days, it was all paperwork, applications, resumes people would have a three-foot stack of copies of resumes and applications they submitted in those days. So it's totally different than what it is now.
1: They'd have to tote around their logbook and, and things like that too, sure. Yes,
2: yes. It was very uh, very, uh, not a very productive system, but it, you had to do it. You had no choice.
1: Gotcha. Now the, So that was when 80% of the, the airline pilots came from the military. And I know right. that in the current situation... That number has been flipped around. Now 80% are coming from where?
2: Well, 80% civilian background. I think within, a, within five years, industry-wide, it'll be 80%. We don't actually have percentages from the Delta and American United, but it is changing. They're predominantly civ- civilian, and at some point, someday, it'll be 80% civilian pilots, approximately, coming from about colleges and flight schools, et cetera.
1: So, Lewis, so how, can, how can we quantify that, number one? And number two, why do you think that that flipped around to where they're now about, you know, or heading towards 80% of professional pilots coming from the private sector.
2: Well, things that changed were the size of the military has shrunk. There's not quite as many aviators as there were before. They started offering, uh, when I went in the service, it was a four-year commitment after pilot training. Now you're committing to 11 years. And that's, okay, so that means people stay in longer. The military is providing more incentives uh, to stay in. And in, in in my day, when I got out, you had to get hired by age 29. United Airlines sent out a, a letter to 12,000 applications on file in 1976, telling every pilot, "Listen, we will not interview you or hire you unless you, if you've turned 30." So age 30 was a kiss of death. Okay, well. Now it's changed. There's no more age discrimination. People can be hired at almost any age. So, therefore, a, p- a pilot can stay in the military for 20 and then do 25 years at the, at the airlines and have a, a double-dip of career, which is pretty fairly common.
1: I mean, just because you've reached retirement age doesn't mean you can't fly professionally anymore because there are other options for seasoned pilots.
2: That's correct at our pilot job fairs in the morning on the saturdays we have them, there'll be anywhere from four to seven companies there recruiting and they specifically want to hire the age sixty five and over pilots who can no longer work at part one twenty one since they're part one thirty five charter operators they can hire any age i think the oldest pilot hired has been age seventy seven at one of our pilot job fairs so there are a lot of people people retire from the airlines and depending on they either want to continue flying or they need to continue flying they will go to someone like Delta private jets who fly jets for the as long as they can. And the Delta Private Jets has developed a, a part time program where you can work eight days a month. Eight days and twenty off, I think, with thirteen bid schedules. I think how it's structured. So uh, Delta Private Jets is, and also they will fly you to work. So you're not you're not commuting on standby or jump seat, they will buy you a ticket on Delta Airlines to get to work. So Delta Private Jets, Gamma Aviation, there's a lot of if you go to the website and look at FAPA dot slash jobs, you will see the companies listed that are recruiting and many of them are hiring, or we specifically say age sixty five plus for those companies.
1: really. That is yes. great news. That's kind of like the reverse of age discrimination. It's like, hey, we got season pilots. We want to. We want you. yeah,
2: yeah. whoever said feast or famine in this business was a genius because it's, I've never seen anything like this.
1: Tell me a little bit about, okay, we've got the the uh, we got the upper end of the spectrum covered. We talked a little bit about the younger end. How can folks who are aviation oriented, get started in aviation. I know this is not your specialty, but you do entertain a lot of young kids. And so, you know, what is it that we can do, you know, as colleagues, as parents, as folks who are trying to cultivate the next generation? What are a couple of things we can look for to get more people in the field?
2: Well, I think you go to the major global and major airlines websites. For example, you look at Uh, propel.delta.com. That is a website for Delta that attracts people into the business, explains the pipeline they're developing. Uh, American Airlines has a cadet academy. United Airlines has one called uh united dot com I think it is. Maybe need, need to verify that later, David. That's from memory, David. So uh un uh dot com and they're all building pipelines and on those websites you'll see redirects and other parts other professions within that company. We don't track uh uh the hiring of any other profession other than pilots, but most of the big airlines that have the most demand, you will find a lot of resources right there. Plus, there's organizations like uh University Aviation Association, the uh, Abbey Aviation Accreditation Bureau International. Those organizations, and there's other women in aviation organizations, of Black Aerospace Professionals. There's National Gay Pilots. There's a lot of organizations out there that are providing information for people that are entering, entering the profession. But we we only right now only track or monitor the pilot. To,
1: Hiring. So do you, I know that you do track and monitor the pilots hiring and you and I and everyone else in the aviation industry have we've grabbed onto these numbers from the Boeing you know pilot and technician jobs outlook that really are startling figures and they
2: are and right now you're, you're correct it's amazing numbers so Boeing I don't see Boeing mentioning automation or artificial intelligence or one pilot aircraft. I'm not sure why they don't mention it because it obviously someday is perhaps coming. I don't know if, and we talk about that in this, our future pilot forums, I mentioned to the parents, well, one of the risks is what if automation occurs and you end up with one pilot in the, in the aircraft, well, that will diminish the demand for pilots, obviously. But any profession you choose, we're going to be faced with automation and artificial intelligence. So you have to decide, is it worth the risk of things changing in the future and things are going to change? Hey, I don't know if passengers will actually fly in the back with only one pilot, but I think uh, Boeing is in the business of selling airplanes, and they don't care if there's a glut of pilots. I think they might prefer a glut of pilots in order to sell their airplanes. A shortage certainly doesn't, a shortage certainly doesn't have Boeing.
1: So in other words, again, like you said, verify the information, look at different sources, and, uh, and take, that, take it with a little bit of a grain of salt a little bit of skepticism.
2: Right. What is the motivation for that person that's giving that information? What's the motivation? Why, are they t- why is this person sharing this information with me? Are they charging me for it, or is it free? So it's important to examine your sources of information. And, and the, the Internet has not made it easier. It's made it less expensive, but it takes more time now to filter through this, this muddy river of information that you receive to determine is this correct or not. And, and there's a lot of people in the industry... Are willing to give free advice and it's well-intentioned but sometimes it's wrong and how does the individual who's brand new know if it's right or wrong
1: well that's that's a good point well they need to rely on their on their network of other aviators and education professionals and things like that right
2: right I had a friend who wanted to be a, a career counselor for FAPA and I interviewed him over the phone and he wanted to be do interview preparation And I said well let me ask you this uh, how many times were you hired by the airlines so well I was hired once and I said, well, how do you know that wasn't a fluke?
1: Right. And, uh, <laughs> well, and, and what he did to get hired might have been uh, something that is not apropos today. I mean, you might need different skills. You might need a different interview. Exactly. Yeah.
2: He was hired 30 years ago. And I quizzed him on what's this? What? And so he obviously could give well intentioned advice, but it would be wrong after my interview with him. And I said, well, here's what's happened lately. You know, it's changed so much. And he was, and like you say, he, he was shocked that people could get jobs at age 65. He thought the rule – he thought that many people thought it was passenger versus freight, that you could go fly for the freighters. No, that's not it. It's part 135, part 121. That's the dividing point. And so it's it's uh, it's interesting. I go on message boards occasionally. It's, it's, it's entertaining. It's informative. But sometimes the advice you see given – Is is not very good.
1: Gotcha. Well, again, uh, uh, trust and verify.
2: Right, and you also, if if you're giving advice, you have to ask that person probably a lot more questions about them than they're going to ask you. So it's not an easy thing to know enough about this business to give someone advice.
1: Well, speaking of advice, we're going off in a little bit different direction, but I like where you're headed on this. You've seen a lot of professional pilots come to to your seminars. And what? Give me a couple of tips for folks who are looking for a pilot career job, or they're looking to change careers. They're coming from military and they want to enter, you know, the sector as a commercial pilot for an airline. Are there some tips that you can give us?
2: Yeah, there's there's a checklist we provide that says first of all, you uh, you get your first class physical. Make sure there's no issues with uh, getting a physical exam. One is to get a discovery flight. Make sure you you. Really want to do this? Get up in the air. A lot of schools will give you a discovery flight, low cost or free. And uh, those are the two first two things you must start to do. And then the other one is have a plan. Look at the numbers. Research what. If you already have a college degree, then it's a matter of choosing a flight school. And so the the advice we give people that if you're researching flight schools, and, and later we'll have a really good uh, comparison table of all the major flight schools. We're working on it now for FAPA. But what you can where you can start is if you go to the the big three airlines, American Delta United, and drill down through their websites, you'll see flight schools that they've vetted and chosen to be part of their pipeline. That saves you some time. If these big airlines have already done this for me, it saves you a lot of time choosing the flight school for you. And those are going to grow. Every month, they change.
1: I got you. Now, you sent me a PowerPoint just a few minutes before we chatted. So you put me on the spot for that. But now I am looking at the PowerPoint. And this is fascinating. Not only do you Not only do you have a nice presentation on the options that are out there, but you really are holding these folks' hands through a 401k and really a lot of major life decisions that that pilots would have. Uh, I find this very interesting.
2: Yeah, it is. You know, there's one of our shareholders in our company. Is a PhD, and we he talked about. I asked him. I said, "Well, why why is it pilots tend to make seems to be poor financial decisions?" And he said, "Well, it's a psychological thing called reaction formation. A person who is in a position where they it's bureaucratic and structured, and they can't take a lot of risk, tends to when they leave that job and open their checkbook, they take a lot of unwarranted risk. And most people who don't make their money dealing with money, like pilots or dentists or whatever or any profession." tend to make a lot of mistakes managing their assets and pilots are no exception.
1: Well, athletes as well. We hear about that right, all
2: the exactly. time. Right, athletes, exactly. So that's why we're in that business because our goal is to help people reach their goals and decisions that we're in and we, we enjoy doing it too. It's, it's more than one kind of profit in this business It's helping people reach their goals. And it's sort of fun watching people. It's so much easier now than it used to be. I've never seen it so easy to find a job and, and for flying. And of course, you know, we, we warn people there's always things that happen in this business if you if you look at that cycle chart of hiring there's a reason why the industry can be unstable it's capital intensive it's labor intensive it's energy intensive it's difficult uh... to make money uh, in this business in certain conditions and recessions affect them oil spikes affect them and now what's affecting companies more now you know, what they never expected is the price of pilots you know petroleum was always their concern but thanks to the shell opera- shell operators in texas and new mexico et cetera the, uh, Oil prices are very inexpensive in real dollars, and pilots have gone up a lot.
1: Gotcha. Lewis, you've been excellent. You've really had some great advice for folks listening in on, uh, for this via the podcast, and a lot of material here for us to let our folks in the flight training world know about. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you want to volunteer at this point? And, and please remind everyone of the website one more time.
2: It's Arrow. Awesome. And one thing I've noticed about this business, the people that are usually most successful, you have to have a sense of humor in this business. Because sometimes things happen that aren't funny to some people, but you still have to laugh at yourself and laugh at the circumstance. So a sense of humor is really important.
1: (laughs) Well, I like that. I like that. Um, That's pretty good. And really, uh, you need to be professional, obviously. Dress for the part. Do your homework. But have a sense of humor, and really, what you're kind of saying, I think, and I won't put words in your mouth, but you gotta be a little flexible when it comes to this. It, industry. Oh yeah,
2: you do, absolutely.
1: All right, Lewis. Well, thank you, Lewis Smith from FAPA Arrow. We appreciate your time here on Hanger Talk via Skype, and I look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully one day in the not too distant future.
2: It was fun. Thanks a lot for inviting me.
0: All right, David, so I think one of my favorite things about Lewis and this group is he, uh, he runs it from his place in Hawaii. The guy lives in Hawaii. Not, not a bad way to go.
1: No, it's a great way to go. And, you know, Lewis does travel the country, at least when there are in-person seminars. But now the virtual pilot job fairs are scheduled out through the end of the year and, uh, and the future pilot forms. Now, that's for folks, for younger people who are interested in being aviators and, and really for their parents as well. But, uh, yeah, he does live in Hawaii. He was really nice to catch up with us a couple of times with some great information. The bottom line, Ian, is that, you know, there is still a huge need for pilots in this world, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, maybe there's just a little bit of a delay and a little bit of a setback. but But basically, Lewis and others have said, stay
0: the course, keep on plugging. Yep, good advice. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly, our editor is Austin Hansen,
1: And I'm David Toulouse. Don't forget, you can find us at AOPA.org slash Hangar Talk. We're also on the Apple and Google Podcasts, wherever you can get your podcasts. And check us out on Spotify as well.
0: All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.